This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nutshell Politics. I'm your charming host, Justin Kinney, and I'm excited to be here with you for the finale of the three-part series I'm doing on Grand Theories of International Relations. If you've tuned in the last two weeks, I've covered two of the main theories. The first one was realism. The second was something called liberal institutionalism, and between the two of them, they comprise a lot of the political scientists in the world. But there are other theories out there, and today I wanted to cover a couple of the more outside ones that you might not hear as much about. Even within political science, you don't come across too many people who adhere to these, but they have gotten some notoriety of in the last couple decades or so, and so I think they're worth covering. But before we do get into this, I just want to mention, if you haven't listened to those last two episodes, I would highly encourage it, probably even before you jump into this one, because I will be referencing the other two theories uh, throughout today's episode. But with that, let's go ahead and get started. So the first theory I wanted to discuss today is something called social constructivism, or sometimes just called constructivism. And this one's kind of a weird theory, uh, at least it doesn't seem to follow the, some of the same definitions and thoughts that you come to find in realism and institutionalism, because it's much more focused on the individual. And it's this idea, kind of the name suggests this, that significant aspects um, or concepts within international relations, even the structure itself of the of the entire world, are all historically or socially constructed by human ideas. Uh, and so this is rather than kind of the realist idea of human nature or the institutionalist idea of, of institutions and organizations. And so this theory is very much more focused on, as I said, kind of the individual look. Now, this theory came about in the 1980s mostly. Uh, it really took off like institutionalism, kind of post-Cold War. And it was really kicked off by a guy by the name of Alexander Wendt. That's W-E-N-D-T. And he really has this, this concept that ideas are what matter most. Not human nature, not anarchy, not institutions or any of these other ideas that you, you find in other theories, but ideas. And so he, he basically argues that the identities of states, the interests of states are highly malleable. They can change, they evolve even rapidly, and they're a product of historical processes. Uh, and so your political identity then defines the relationships among governments. And so you can think of this in a sense of like how states identify themselves and how individuals identify themselves. Because just as an example here, I, I live in the United States. And so I live in Tennessee, and so there's this question of, do I feel more Tennessean, do I feel more North Carolinian where I grew up, or do I feel more American? Or if you're in Europe, then is, is this person, do they feel more German, or do they feel more European? Because that identity helps you understand who you are, but also helps you respond to situations. And so constructivists 
actually kind of like realists in a sense, are really big on structure. But whereas realists think that structure is made up of material capability and the distribution of resources, anarchy, human nature, constructivists are much more focused on this idea of identity, shared knowledge, and social relationships. And so this theory gained a lot of legitimacy at the end of the Cold War because realism and idealism, institutionalism, some of these other theories were really unable to predict the the end of the Cold War. Realism in particular was really heavily focused on, on this idea that war is inevitable. And when the war never came and the conflict ended without spilling over into war, it really struggled to understand why. And so constructivism kind of popped up to help explain this. And so it's very much um, this idea, as I said, of kind of a social constructed aspects of international relations, either through history or social relationships, even to the point where you would say that reality itself is socially constructed. And it doesn't really exist. Reality, I should say, doesn't exist without a social understanding of it. And the international system doesn't exist on its own. It's this kind of system of ideas and norms that get arranged by people and people's ideas. And therefore, because ideas change, the system is also changing. If, if individual thoughts change, then the system changes. And so the main unit of analysis here is not states, it's not institutions, it's individuals. And further then too, you can get into this idea of like collective norms, social identities, individual beliefs, and that actually then can rise the level of changing and shaping state behavior. And this is especially true of the ideas of what you would consider like the elite states, the, the big ones, the most powerful ones. And so social constructivists are huge into things like culture and context to help understand what happens in international relations. And so the most important aspect of IR to a constructivist is social, not material. The other theories, especially realism, but even liberal institutionalism, are material-focused. How are materials distributed? Uh, the material entity of like an institution or an international organization. But... To a constructivist, it's all about social, a social relationship, a social consciousness, uh, human consciousness, a social reality. And so they claim that kind of the realist structure focus on anarchy is misplaced. Anarchy doesn't really determine the interactions of states and actors. Instead, it's those ideas that lead to structure, which constrain states, which then changes ideas. So the argument gets a little bit circular in social constructivism. And so any study of IR to the constructivist, you have to focus on things like culture and the beliefs and ideologies of the individuals who are making decisions. And so one of the big takeaways of social constructivism is that the system can and will change because people can and will change over time. And the way it changes then, too, I should mention, is that the actors, the individuals, think about the social structures and the systemic structures and act on them in new ways, which then transforms the overall structure. And so Alexander Wendt, who's kind of the founder of this theory, really takes sharp aim at realists and liberal institutionalists who are so focused on materialist causes of state action, things like resources, because for Wendt, the beliefs that states hold about each other is what determines the international politics. And this is constructed, as I mentioned before, through social relationship, not any sort of material reality. They don't deny things like power and self-interest mattering in world politics, 
but they focus really heavily on collective meanings in the international system. So just as an example with the Cold War, they might make the argument that if the United States and the Soviet Union just decide that they are no longer enemies one day, they both just come to this realization, the Cold War ends. It's not being driven by conflict on any sort of human nature level. It's not being driven by conflict on an international anarchy level or through resource distribution or anything like that. It's about decisions and identities. And we have decided who is our enemy and who is who is not. And those identities can change. And, and they would argue they frequently do. And while this theory is much more limited in terms of the number of people who really adhere to it, there are quite a few, so I should say, notable constructivists out there in international relations and political science. Uh, you have people like Martha Finnamore, Catherine Sakink. And so while there are a lot fewer political scientists who really adhere to this, there are some influential ones out there. And this theory is has gained some popularity among certain segments of society, in particular ones that are heavily focused on concepts of social identity. If you're feminist, you tend to like theories like this because it's all about the ideas of what is masculine, what is feminine, um, different ideas of race and how that has constructed the international system. If you're big into those type of theories and those type of ideas of how the world is shaped and constructed, you might feel at home with a social constructivist. The problem with this theory, though, kind of gets at a, at a deeper idea of what what is the purpose of a theory. Because social constructivism depends so heavily on individual ideas that it's completely incapable of having any sort of predictive value. You can't predict the content of future ideas very well. You can't predict how individuals are going to change their minds, which means this theory is entirely dependent on being descriptive looking back. There's nothing you can really do with it going forward. It's, it's pretty much a useless theory when you try to use it to predict and to plan for going forward. So, so there's some questions as to whether or not this even is a theory to begin with. And so while it may seem obvious at times to state things like beliefs, interactions, perceptions can help shape the way that you view the world, shape reality, you know, the idea that thoughts and actions construct international relations, the implications here really only are descriptive looking back, not, not prescriptive looking forward. And further, because ideas are a much more vague concept than, say, a material entity like a resource, it can still have even some problems looking back as to how you understand what ideas were 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And so while constructivism does have some appealing concepts, it really hasn't taken hold. It's really failed to take hold in the political science, international relations community because of some of these flaws with its usefulness. Okay, now let's take a step back. I want to look at a different theory for a minute. This one's probably even less well-known. Uh, it's something called the English School. Now, the English School, its name is a little bit misleading. To my knowledge, there's nothing really specific that ties it to England at all. But the English School of Thought is kind of a weird mix of a few. And it's, it's sometimes called liberal realism. It also has some, a lot of similarities to constructivism, although it's, it's much more rooted in things like political theory, international law, world history, and it's much more normative in approach than, say, you find in most constructivist ideas. But basically the argument here is that despite the condition of anarchy, you know, the lack of a global ruler, world state, there is a what they call a society of states at the international level that help govern and construct the world as we see it today. 
Much like realism, they kind of start with this assumption that an international system is based around the interaction between other states. And so as soon as at least two, maybe more states interact with each other, you get a system. And so it basically claims that when states share some sort of common interest, this can lead to them developing a set of rules or norms that govern at the international level. And so you have this group of states that interact in a way that helps form the world. And this is this is done by the elite states, the big ones, the main powerful ones at the top of the, the hierarchy chain here. And so while there are some similarities with realism and the power politics that you find there, it's a little bit more on the rationalist front, where there's kind of a, a middle ground between it and this idea that ideas also help shape things because you know, sharing common interests is an idea. And so the English school really believes pretty heavily in the concept of ideas in addition to material capabilities helping shape the way that countries conduct themselves on the international level. But the English school can kind of be divided into two categories, and it's described this way by one of their main thinkers, a man by the name of Hedley Bull. And he basically says there's two kinds of wings or divisions within the English school. The first is the pluralists. And these are people who look at humankind, mankind, and say that there's so many different political views, religious views, ethnic backgrounds, linguistic traditions, cultures, and so on, that... That, that diversity works best within a society that allows for states to work independently so that they can continue to pursue those diverse ideas and practices. The other one is the Solidaris. And this wing of the English school basically looks at the society of states and says the society should ha- play a larger role in promoting certain causes like human rights, And so while the pluralists are much more about celebrating diversity and the diverse ideas and states should largely be kind of left alone within a society that allows for states to be independent, the solidarists think that states, uh, the society of states at the top of that hierarchy pyramid should do more in the way of getting involved with states uh, through, you know, whatever causes are, you know, key of of that moment. And so this is very much opposed to the right of states to political independence because it says the society should be able to step in and do more to promote some human rights causes, more or less. And so these two kind of schools within the English school, or two, I should say, divisions within the English school, help shape a lot of English school philosophy. Now, as you can see, this theory doesn't have nearly as much behind it. Obviously, I'm doing this in like a five-minute segment where I've done... 20 to 30 minute segments on realism institutionalism. So it's maybe not as well developed in certain cases. It's certainly not as popular, but there are a fair amount of people. Headley Bull has a pretty good reputation in political science, and he's one of the big promoters of this theory. So, you know, there are some significant political scientists who fall into this. Now, really quickly, I do want to kind of run through a few of the other theories that just exist out there. There are, are a lot of little tiny ones. As I mentioned, the English school. Uh, is probably the largest of the the tiny ones. But you have like a Marxist view of the world. This is rejecting the realist and liberal view of conflict, and it really focuses much more on the material or economic aspects. So the economic concerns transcend all others, and especially in terms of power. And so the focus of society is not on states, not on institutions, it's not on individuals, but it's on classes. 
Uh, so that's, that's Marxism in a nutshell. Uh, you have functionalism, which is instead of focusing on, say, the self-interest as the motivating factor, they focus on common interests, which are shared by multiple states. And so these this is a phenomenon that it's a function of the international system. You also have something called state cartel theory, which is kind of an interesting one. It's it's similar to functionalism, uh, but it's kind of a mix of a lot of these different ideas. But there's a heavy focus on international organizations here, which they call cartels or alliance of rivals, which are made up by states. And they like this this concept of the alliance of rivals helping drive a lot of international uh, construction and international theory. And so there are a lot of these kind of smaller theories that crop up. Realism is by far still probably the most common, followed on its heels by liberal institutionalism. Then you have social constructivism, which is kind of a, the little brother of the other two, but has a fairly significant portion of the population in political science that does still believe it. I would call it a significant minority. And then you have these kind of other small ones, English school, Marxism, functionalism, state cartel, and there's probably a dozen or more other little tiny ones out there too. And then, of course, there's plenty of political scientists who fall in a spectrum somewhere between all of these two. But the reason I thought this is so important to do actually a three-part series on international theories is because the way you view the world frequently can affect the way that you try to understand it, the way that you react to different situations, and the way that you interpret relationships and interactions on the international stage. Uh, you can see this in cases here in the United States with our own presidency. Just as an example, Donald Trump right now is much more of a realist. And we know this because we look at the way that he treats international institutions. He doesn't put a high priority on groups like the UN or NATO, whereas President Obama was much more of an institutionalist. Uh, going back further, you know, you have President Bush, who was probably on the realist side, but not as strong as Trump is. And so where, when you can start to view the world through these lenses, you can understand why, say, Trump says some of the things he does about NATO or the UN, because he really doesn't put a lot of stock in their ability to do anything outside of the power states give them. He thinks states are the highest form of international power. President Obama was much bigger on the idea of international organizations. He thought they had power in and of themselves, and so he pursued that. He saw the world as being peace, more peaceful, I should say, through the presence and activity of these organizations. And so where you land on the spectrum, too, can help you to understand why you view certain things the way you do and how to predict things going forward, how to react to situations. And ultimately, it can help you to understand some of these relationships that are taking place at the international level. But with that, I'm going to go ahead and conclude the episode. This is only ever intended to be a, a short one this week because we're dealing with some smaller theories. But I hope you've enjoyed this mini-series, three-part series that I've done on grand theories of international relations. If you're at all interested in any of these, want to know more, please hit me up. I'd be happy to continue this conversation or any others from previous episodes. You can always find me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. You can also find me on Facebook at J. Robert Kenny. That's the name I write fiction novels under. Please find me there. Subscribe. Hit that follow button on both. Uh, you can also please check out my book, Precipice. It's on Amazon under J. Robert Kinney. And you can find my new book, which will be coming out this fall, on Amazon shortly as well. And I'll let you know when that's available. If you're interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast, or advertising on the podcast, you can always find my Patreon account. Or you can just contact me directly, and I'd be happy to talk with you more about that possibility. But with that said, and until the next episode, this is Nutshell Politics. I'm Justin Kinney, and I'm out in three, two, one.